I know Katie gets done at 12. Yeah. But she was probably looking forward to having like a quiet afternoon. <laughs> and now I'm going to destroy it by making her pick up my kids in the snow. It was funny because I was using the afternoon to watch, finally watch Julie and Julia. <laughs> <laughs> And then Casey came home. We were watching it together and we had half an hour left. And I was like, <laughs> I I'm sorry, we got, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. He was like, I'm getting really into it. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that movie either. And I really want to. It's very Is it good? Cute. Okay, yes. I'll watch it soon. I like it. Oh, uh, uh, we got a lot of new reviews this yes, week. Yes, we did. So nice. We got one from Luna.T42 mm-hmm. and from Miss Krista and from AMG underscore 10. Yes. All super nice. Super nice. And I also, I want to say the Wikipedia one really got me because it's one of my hobbies. Like (laughs) uh, on a lazy afternoon, what I really, really like to do is I like to watch movie trailers Mm. for movies that I will never see. And then I read the Wikipedia plot page about them. So that you don't have to watch the movie or because you'll never get around to it. Because I'll never get around to watching the movie. So, So it's just something I do for like an unbelievable amount of movies because I love to spoil things for myself. Yeah. I love a spoiler. I, I like to know the end of things for sure. I do too. Like, I don't care about the middle, but no. the end is nice. <laughs> there was something Casey and I were watching and I spoiled it for myself before we finished. It was some like really like, like, I think it was Dexter. Yeah, I spoiled Dexter for <laughs> Let me just look up the end because I hear it's terrible. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, so I feel you, and we love your reviews. They were so kind and wonderful, and, oh, my gosh, just so, so great. And a bunch <laughs> of new patrons, too. Yes. We love it for our Sandra Day O'Connor Day yes. next month. Um, we've got Joyce and Maura and Caitlin and Connor. They're the newest members of the crew. Welcome. So thank you. We love it. Um. But we could talk about you guys all day oh, and how can. much we love you. Yes. Uh, but we have some really cool things to get to on our show, History on the Rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind when you're listening, if this is your first time or your hundredth time, we are not historians. <laughs> and we are drinking the entire time, yes. even if it is 1.30 in the yeah. afternoon. <laughs> Um, and we tell two stories. We Mm -hmm. serve a brand new themed cocktail for each woman. And then we compare the two at the end, Mm -hmm. no matter how wild it is by that point, we will still compare them. It'll be great. So if you're ready, we're ready. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So because you're very busy, um, you are thumbing through the latest edition of Vogue. And uh, you don't want to, you know, touch your phone and then lick your thumb to turn the page. You know, it's just too many germs, you know, because I feel like the phone is germ magnet, just germ city. So you can't look up what these women look like while you're looking at spring fashion lines for 2021. So we are going to describe what these women look like for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Ali, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing a group of women oh. tonight. I'm doing the Mirabal sisters and there's four of them, but there's three that are usually okay. pictured. They are of Dominican descent living on the island of Hispaniola. All four sisters were quite beautiful with dark brown hair and beautiful full lips and cute smiles. Maria Teresa is the youngest and often has her hair in a long braid. Patria is the oldest and wears her hair like short 
and curly and like parted kind of looks like mm-hmm. a little matronly a little bit more like a mom day day is the second oldest and has a big smile we have the most pictures of her in her older years she had glasses dark black short hair and like a white streak in the front kind of like mm-hmm. rogue or mm-hmm. indira gandhi okay and then minerva mirabal is arguably the most stunning of the sisters she resembles them but has a hollywood air about her she kind of i think looks like britney murphy she's darling and i'll show you the picture later where i think she looks like britney murphy because i was just like wow she's beautiful (laughs) excellent who are you doing and what does she look like i'm doing julia child oh we know Um, what she definitely know what she looks like um she was a tall statuesque woman at an impressive height of six two Wow, I didn't know she was that tall. Yeah, she had long arms and broad shoulders, very good for whisking. She had a round face, small eyes, and a sharp petite nose, and just this bright, wide smile, which boasted a boisterous, sing-songy voice, which could be recognized anywhere <laughs> and that's what julia child looked like oh i'm so excited yeah oh and she has like short kind of curly brown hair you know i don't know <laughs> and she always wears pearls yes like that's just i don't know i feel like everyone just knows what she looks like mm-hmm. i don't always, know she has she wore an apron a lot right yes. pretty much yeah. always okay an yeah. apron and kind of like you know like a short button like down. button down shirt and then a lot of times she had um a pin with the number three on it which we'll talk about well can you tell me what i'm drinking because it looks beautiful so this is called bon appetit it is juice from half a tangerine it is an ounce and a half of french vodka a dash of vanilla extract and you top the whole thing off with sparkling rosé so the art the tangerine is kind of like an homage to her california roots but of course i wanted to do like our take on the french 75 because paris is a huge part of this story so cheers cheers Mm. Wow. I mean, I love anything with like topped with bubbly. The Mm. orange and the vanilla extract are so interesting Mm -hmm. together. And then just like the hit of champagne at the end. I really like it. Mm -hmm. I feel like orange Mm. and vanilla are things that you usually get in like those variety hot cocoa packets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the orange vanilla yeah. hot cocoa. That's what it tastes like, but alcoholic. Yep, exactly. <sighs> and it's great because I reached out to cheers with my COVID shot arm and I was like, <laughs> oh, I can't reach any further. Um, anybody who has gotten the shot so far, I'm sure we have a lot of nurses and teachers and mm-hmm. stuff that listen man <laughs> is it really painful it's really <laughs> my arm is really really sore wow. i did not expect it i thought yeah. it'd be like oh the flu shot so i gave him my right yeah. arm like an idiot <laughs> I'm like i'm right-handed i'm so <laughs> stupid but oh whatever well, that's at least not, you got it i know i'm about oh to say i can't gosh. complain <laughs> okay so julie child yeah what do you know about her uh i know that she like is such a famous ch- chef yeah that she has like full entire cookbooks Mm -hmm. and that's really all i know about her because Mm -hmm. i know that when that movie came out julia and julie i think it was julie and julia okay they're both their names are julia that um it was about a woman making one cooking her way through the entire cookbook yeah which is rough because these are like crazy heavy french recipes yeah and it would be like if you went and got all the ingredients for all of our cocktails and made each of them like miss krista does i was literally watching that movie and i was like this must have been 
so expensive. <laughs> like seriously, because and they do talk a little bit about it in the movie, like you know, because she started the blog, and then she, like people started like sending her in stuff and money, and like right. you know, being like, "Hey, I'm, I love what you're doing," you know, whatever. Um, I still have a half an hour left in the movie, so I don't know how it ends. But <laughs> <laughs> I know how Julia's life ends. Well, tell me about it because I really want to know. Okay. So I got literally, I mean, like pretty much half and half of this information from the History Chicks and this other podcast, Great Women of Business. And of course, a little bit from her Wikipedia page. Um, okay. Julia Carolyn McWilliams was born on August 15th. 1915 in Pasadena, California. Her father, John McWilliams, was a wealthy land manager and her mother, Julia Carolyn Weston, was a classic Massachusetts wasp <laughs> coming from old money with her mother being in the DAR, if that paints any kind of picture for you. Sure does. <laughs> and they kind of took that similar wasp approach to parenting. Perfectly nice parents, but, you know, they were just not very engaged with the kids. You know, they just kind of like let the staff take care of them. Hmm. So Julia was the oldest, and after her came John McWilliams III and her sister, Dorothy. And together, the family lived in a beautiful, large home, and they ate very large meals. <laughs> Julia remembers all the McWilliams children scarfing down dinner, which might be why they all grew up to be so damn tall. <laughs> Which I love. Jane Lynch plays her sister, Dorothy. Mm. And nothing is more delightful than watching Jane Lynch and Meryl Streep act together. I didn't know I needed it until I saw it. That sounds wonderful. And they're just being like huge ass 50s women just being uh, just in Paris being like, I love this cheese. Like, it's amazing. (laughs) And you said she was 6'2". She's 6'2". That's producer's height. That's like tall, tall. Yeah. It's like tall for a boy tall. So, um, but for Julia, all that food really meant to her in her childhood was just to like fuel her activities. (laughs) Julia was an extremely active child. She loved playing sports and games, but she especially loved riding her bike around Pasadena with her girlfriends Mm -hmm. who they called themselves the Delta Club and they would get into all sorts of mischief. (laughs) They went fishing. They hung out with hobos down at the railroad tracks. They pulled pranks on neighbors. They would steal cigars and cigarettes from their dads and smoke them up in trees. Like, (laughs) can you imagine how hysterical it would be to like literally look up into a tree and see a gaggle of seven-year-old girls? They're seven. I love that. And they're smoking cigars. Oh my gosh. And then, of course, there was a time Julia got stuck in a chimney and trying to like sneak into someone's house, I think it was. And the Delta Club had to literally dismantle the chimney to get them out. Like, this club was ridiculous. <laughs> and these are, again, elementary age kids. That's so funny. I uh, love a spunky little kid. I know. And that's like seriously what you need to know about Julia. She loves to have fun, which meant that she wasn't always the best in school. Uh, she got pretty average grades. Uh, She was, of course, in private school her whole life, even going to boarding school in ninth grade. Um, But again, she was just more into the activity. She played golf, tennis, and of course, basketball. But even though she was very tall and strong and active, she wasn't the most coordinated. So she was also known for just tripping on absolutely nothing. (laughs) She also enjoyed acting and she took part in school plays, of course, playing the male part in most productions. (laughs) Because again, it's an all-girls boarding school and she's very tall. Um, But she really got involved in almost every activity because she just loved hanging out with people. And she was a really fun person to hang out with. I mean, she was a hoot and a holler at 
any school event, (laughs) which of course translated to college. After boarding school, Julia went off to the prestigious Smith College. You could definitely say she was a legacy student because um, she didn't get the best grades. But since her mom went there, there was no way that Julia was not going to Smith. (laughs) Right. Her first few years were spent hanging with friends in the dorms, just having a good time as usual. But then in her senior year, two exciting things happened. Number one, she got a car on campus. And number two, prohibition had ended. (laughs) So you better believe that (laughs) Julia and her friends were going to go out on the town. And that they did. Julia said it was a good thing the car had an open top because there were a lot of college girls vomiting out the side. (laughs) good i have been there i know oh my gosh i just remember yeah vomiting out the side of a car after maria's bachelorette party and a taco bell drive-thru yeah just and it's a classic <laughs> it is classic. classic and then like when the windows open and it like flies oh back my gosh. Like, oh my god i'm an idiot oh. i'm such an idiot god mm. the worst is when you get it like in the thing like in the window slot. the crevices the yeah. and then you put it the window up and it's like dripping down <laughs> Ooh, let me take a sip of my drink <laughs> um yeah that's definitely those nights when you're like i'm never drinking oh, again absolutely. and then you're like at noon like when is it cocktail time yep. <laughs> but eventually she did graduate in 1934 with a bachelor's in history um but it wasn't exactly the degree she was hoping to leave with as much fun as julia was having um at school she wasn't exactly the most popular girl to date so she is a historian yes <laughs> but um, she wants an mrs degree yeah, is she that what wants I'm an mrs okay. degree yes <laughs> men always thought of her as a friend so when she graduated without a fiance it was kind of like shit well, what do i do now it was kind of the plan <laughs> i mean even the president of smith college knew that this was the plan for a lot of these girls and he said at julia's graduation well you aren't the brightest class, but you are the marryingest. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you've got to take the stats you can get. Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so she's like, all right, well, I will go off to be a writer in the best place to find a man. Or so she thought. New York City. Uh, but in the words of Carrie Bradshaw, no one had told Julia the truth yet. That love was dead in New York City. And that became painfully obvious when she got her first boyfriend at the age of 24. And after six months of dating, she found out that he was actually courting one of her friends. Oh. And like he was just like seeing her like on the side, but he wasn't serious about pursuing her. Oh, but it was just like, th- was it to be nice? Did he like feel I bad for her? I don't know. Or was she like the backup girl in case the other one didn't work? I think so. Aww. Which is so sad because then this is like, I mean, her first big heartbreak at 24. And she was like, fuck, like, again, like I thought this was going to be it. And then I thought I was going to be like out of the weeds here. And now I'm like getting an old maid territory. And she's like getting kind of nervous. Um, But she got a job as a typist uh, at a copywriting company making $18 a week. And apparently having to live off of $18 a week, um, she became a staunch Democrat after that. She was like, wow, this is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But more heartbreak was to come. Shortly after all this, Julia had to move home to Pasadena after she discovered that her mother was really sick. And this is like the 1930s, right? Because it's like end of prohibition. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's like this age, it would have been considered old then to not be married. And Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um. And so she came home, but after two months, um, her mother passed away. And Julia was obviously just, like, 
sad and a little lost. And then her father, seeing his spinster daughter back home, just kind of, he just kind of shuffled her back into the role of being like the lady of the house. He's like, you know, your mom's gone, so we need someone to be, you know, the McWilliams matriarch. So since you're not married, I guess that will be you. And she just was like, okay. And for five years, that's what she did. She stayed home and she ran things. Um, she did end up getting a job writing some fashion articles, um, which is really ironic because she could never find clothes that fit her because she was so tall. Um, <laughs> but really, she just felt stuck. She was like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in the same house in Pasadena, just like like not doing anything. So at the age of 30, she started to really get herself together. She got a new job at an ad agency. She decided to celebrate her singleness and childlessness, saying, you know what? All my married friends aren't allowed to do shit anymore. I can do whatever I want. She even rejected a marriage proposal around this time because she was like, I'm not just going to settle for a guy that I don't care about just to be married. Hell yeah. So she's like really coming into her own. Um, as we have said many times, 30 is where it's at. Yeah. I was about to say, as we do in our 30s. Yes. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm very excited. Um, You're so close. I'm so close. I found a gray hair on producer this ah, week. That's exciting. I've been getting gray hairs recently. I cannot wait. I'm so jealous. I just want to be silvery. I've always wanted to dye my hair silver, but I have dark hair and I have been Too afraid my whole life of dyeing it. Um, so single, 30. Flirty, thriving, fabulous. And then Pearl Harbor was bombed and everything changed for the U.S. Right, right, right. Yeah. And Julia thought, you know what? I can do something valuable and meaningful. So she marched down to apply for the wax. But she was too tall. Oh, no. And then she went down to apply for the waves. And she was too tall. That's absurd. Poor but, Julia. But you know who she wasn't too tall for? The OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is kind of the precursor to the CIA. So it's like secrets, spies, sharks, which we'll get to in a minute. So in 1942, <laughs> she began her OSS career as a typist at its headquarters in Washington. But because of her education and experience, soon she was given a lot more responsibility um, and she became a top secret researcher researcher working directly for the head of the OSS general William J Donovan no way mm -hmm. so she is much more than a typist now and by 1943 the navy was having a really big problem sharks they were setting off explosives in the water. They're <laughs> stop it, and like they are really fucking things up. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So they go to Julia and say, "Like, do you think you can help us with the top secret mission?" And she said, "Absolutely, I can." And they said, "Perfect. We need you to try and create a shark repellent recipe for bombs." So she went and <laughs> did her research, and she, you know, just got in the kitchen. She always says this is like her first recipe, like. <laughs> experimentation <laughs> and she was like all right and then she found out that if she mixed uh copper acetate and red dye that would do just the trick which makes sense because copper smells metallic like blood right and red dye so like i don't know if sharks can see color but like it looks like blood so uh 
I don't know why that repels them. I would think that it, hmm. well, now I don't know why. Them. Anyways, <laughs> maybe they were putting it over somewhere else. Wow, to there keep, are 10,000 birds in your tree. I know. I keep seeing them and I don't understand what <laughs> there's what, so many. This is Alfred Hitchcock. We're both <laughs> in birds. a rear window yes. and looking at birds. Oh my God, there's so many. Um, anyways, so, <laughs> so she created shark repellent <laughs> and it was used by the Navy for over 25 years. That is incredible. <laughs> I had no idea that this would be part of her story. I do, however, feel like there so many of the women born anytime we say the birthday, we're always listening for that Second World War birthday where they're going to be in the prime of their life Mm -hmm. when it hits the Second World War. And this is just one of those stories. It really is. Oh, my gosh. So then they had another secret mission for her and 12 other women. And suddenly she's on her way to Sri Lanka. Very cool. And of course, this was just nothing like Julia had ever seen. She was overwhelmed and thrilled by the monkeys and elephants and the lush greenery. It was so beautiful. And the food was so wild. Julia grew up on literal like meat and potatoes diet. So all of this food was blowing her mind. But she was there to do a job. Again, because of her advanced education, she was in charge of typing up the spy reports. In Sri Lanka. Yes. What are we doing in Sri Lanka at that time? Did we just have a base because it was near Japan? Is that like War of the Pacific type thing? I think so. I really don't know what she was doing there. Or maybe like they were like, well, Sri Lanka is kind of like a safe base. So like the Philippines would have been too close. Yeah. Okay. So because I think she was supposed to go to India and then she got rerouted to Sri Lanka. Oh, interesting. Um, So which is like the teardrop of India. It's like this little little island island at the bottom. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, um, also, you know what I found out mm-hmm. that we're, we're going to have to start doing, I guess, historians say the second world war. They don't mm. say world war two. Interesting. I saw a tweet that somebody put up. Anybody Why? who's listening, who's a historian, I don't know the huh. first world war and the second world war. It's like, you can tell that some, that one of the tweet was like, yeah, you can tell somebody doesn't know what they're talking about when they oh. say world war one, world war two. Rude. <laughs> I was like, screw you. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I didn't make a door hanger that said World War II never forget in <laughs> elementary school for nothing. Did I ever tell you that I did that? No. Yeah. I was in elementary school and I had just learned about the Holocaust um, from my mom. And I was like, that's so terrible. I was like, why aren't more people talking about this? So, yeah, we were doing, like, one of those, like, arts and crafts things. We were making felt door hangers. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote on mine a star of David, and I wrote World War II, never forget. Hey. (laughs) And you know what? We haven't, so you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I I spread the word. It reminds me of Tara Westover and Educated when she was in college, and she was like, what is that word? I've never seen it before. Oh, my gosh. That scene broke my heart. (gasps) I know. Okay. But it wasn't just secrets and animals she was enjoying. She met a man in Sri Lanka named Paul Child. Paul was an artist who was working as a map maker or something like that. <laughs> and even though this cartography, would, yeah. <laughs> and even though this would turn into a love story for the ages, it didn't quite start off that way. Ooh. Julia did not think Paul was very attractive, and he thought that she was way too loud and hysterical for him. <laughs> uh, but fortunate for them, they were the only people in this little military group who were, dare I say, brave enough to go out and eat the local food. So the two of them became dinner companions out at all these local restaurants in Sri Lanka. And they soon found out that they really liked each other and they got along really well. I love that. 
I know. How cute. <laughs> now, it did take Paul a little more time to come around than Julia. He was 10 years older and he was much more worldly. Julia didn't have any experience in the bedroom. She was a virgin and he had actually been in a bohemian relationship for a long time with his girlfriend um, back in Paris, like long before he met Julia. Um, I mean, he and this French girlfriend were together for 17 years. Oh, yeah. Were they to, and they were together just... while they were like going out to dinner and stuff. No, no, no. She had died right before he came to oh, Sri that's Lanka. Terrible. I know. So he's like heartbreak city. Like he's super sad. Like he's like so, not looking for a rebound. Thank you. Not looking at all. And he was just like, okay, here's this like tall woman who like, yeah, I, I get along with and she likes food. And then. And she, oh, but the girlfriend, yeah, she died of lung cancer right before, which is so sad. I can't remember if I said that. Um, but anyways, and so it might kind of excuse his coldness in the beginning, um, but he credits Julia for bringing him back to life after this. Mm, great. <laughs> then they were transferred together to Kunming, China, and they loved China, especially the cuisine. They continued exploring the country and enjoying every bit of food along the way. In fact, Julia credits China for really fueling her passion for food. She liked food in Sri Lanka, but she loved food in China. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So now they are like officially together. And after the war, they moved to California, where Julia decided to enroll in cooking school. She was like, you know what? I really like food, so I'm going to do something about it. But the Beverly Hills cooking school was not the best fit for her. Um, the, very, the very first thing she ended up cooking for dear Paul was brains simmered in red wine, which sounds absolutely terrible. Brains? And, yeah, brains, which like I like Googled that and I couldn't even find like any sort of modern recipe for it. Wow. Yeah. I also, is it is it true that like culinary is more of like a male field, whereas like mm -hmm. baking is more of a female field? Yeah. Well, and I think any sort of, <laughs> I mean, kind of like with everything, any sort of like paid to cook thing is a male field. It's okay. like women are meant to do it at home for free. Uh -huh. And when it's a, like, it's, it's prestigious it's when prestigious it's a man. prestigious when it's a man and he's okay. getting paid to do it. I see. So, so yeah. So she um, tries this out and after eating literal bad brains um <laughs> paul was like wow if i still like her after that maybe we should get married so the pair ended up marrying on september 1st 1946 but unfortunately their wedding photos were kind of messed up because they had been in a terrible car accident the night before so paul has a cane and julia has this like giant bandage on her forehead <laughs> oh no i know but they looked so happy i mean they were such a cute <laughs> couple they were endlessly devoted to each other and they were super quirky together in later years they were known for their funny valentine's day cards they said they couldn't get it together enough to send out christmas cards so they sent out valentine's day cards that's cute the best one is of them taking a bubble bath together and it says wish you were here in a little pink heart <laughs> And there's a great scene of Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci recreating it. That's so cute. That, that is really, really cute. You know, it reminds me of um, when in Friends, Phoebe gets married to Paul Rudd and Mike Hannigan. And in his vows, he's like, you're just so wonderfully weird. Yeah. It's like, that's when, like, you know you've met your match. Oh. When it's like, the that's the person that I can be quirky with. Absolutely. I love it. Mm. So, but after the wedding... They had to move again because Paul works. Paul still works for the government. So he's the one being transferred. He kind of works in the um, 
oh gosh what is it not diplomat something like that he like works like in the diplomatic field so okay he's constantly being moved so he's going all over the world yeah all to over do the world. stuff okay mm-hmm. um so embassies yes yeah he yeah he works like yeah in the embassies mm-hmm. so they move again to washington dc and julia kept practicing her cooking um and i think this is a really important thing to note she was not a natural cook but she loved to eat good food and by golly she was going to learn how to cook it <laughs> And then the opportunity of a lifetime came along when Paul was transferred again to Paris. They were both so excited. Julia had never been to Europe before, and Paul kind of felt like he was going home. He had lived there for years before. He loved Paris, and he spoke fluent French. And, of course, the food was to die for. The very first meal Julia ever had in Paris would live in infamy in her mind. She had oysters Portuguese, sole meunier, green salad, creme fraiche, and fine wine. She said this meal was an opening up of the soul and spirit. So she's 32 right now, and she feels like she's starting a whole new life. And so she is like, wow, I love Paris. I want to be Parisian. But she was like, I don't want to just be like doing nothing. She like Julia's super like we said earlier, she's really active. So she's like, all right, I'm going to, you know, she hasn't quite figured out that like she's like, OK, I want to cook for a living. So she tried making hats for a little bit. And she's like, wow, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> and then she just like tried a few other things. And then she was like, you know what? I'm going to go to cooking school. I mean, she made shark repellent. I know. Shouldn't that be the end of the story? And then she made shark repellent. She made shark repellent. Nope, not for her. (laughs) So. (laughs) And also, poor sharks. I know. I feel so bad for sharks. So uh, she enrolls in the prestigious Le Cordon Bleu cooking school. That's like the most prestigious. The most famous and prestigious one. Yes. (laughs) Because I knew the words. I I was like, well, I've heard that one. (laughs) Now, Um, could I spell it? No. No. Um, but when she got there, she discovered that they had put her in the homemaking class and she was like, no, that's not what I'm here to do. I know how to boil an egg. I can do that already. She was like, I want to learn how to prepare a nice bouillabaisse. And they were like, well, no, that's not really for you. Like, you know, like that's for men, like da, 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 da. And she I want to like, boil an egg. Someone teach me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm boiling eggs all the time nowadays. Um, but she was like, I don't want to be in this. I want to be there. And so very reluctantly, they put her in the advanced class of 11 men. She dress up like a boy, like Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Someone posted a screenshot of that episode of Sabrina where she like turns herself into a boy. Do you remember that? And she had an awful blonde butt cut (laughs) to be with Harvey. (laughs) She wanted to figure out like if he was talking about her. Oh my god. Oh god. Harvey and Libby. Oh my god. Remember Libby? Yeah, Libby Mm. was. the worst she was so mean (laughs) okay um so she fucking loves cooking school (laughs) and she was the most dedicated little chef you could ever dream of she was told once that she wasn't chopping her onions like properly so when paul came home one day she was cutting like 10 pounds of onions until she got it perfect (laughs) (laughs) practice practice did she have those goggles so you don't cry oh no no she did not so yeah her eyes were hurting really bad (laughs) 
And even though she did um, spend her lunch hours getting busy with Paul at home, which I think is so cute, they would literally go home and meet afternoon up for lunch and have, and have a little Ooh. afternoon delight. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> in her other free time, she would go and see cooking demonstrations and then get all the ingredients and come home and copy it. And let me tell you, this was not the most comfortable kitchen to be cooking in. Six to Julia had to bend down quite a lot to reach the stove because it came like literally like just above her knee. Because <laughs> this was a historic French kitchen yeah. in the heart of Paris. Like it's tiny. Like it doesn't it hasn't had the Lillian Gilbreth. No, once it over. has not. <laughs> But her teacher really loved her tenacity and he took her under his wing while she was there. Um, And he just takes the time to also not only teach her how to cook, but how to go to the French markets and shop for ingredients and how to locate the best vegetables. And then he was like, also, Julia, I'm going to introduce you to my fishmonger, which is like, whoa, that is important. The, the guy you can buy the, the fish guy from. You can buy the fish from because Wowza. getting fresh seafood is very important. You know, I guess I don't know, and I'm sure difficult. I've you been... have to be connected with the right people. Exactly, I think. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I really don't know, but sounds it sounds right. very important. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is very exciting. She's in with the fishmonger. Um. But her tenacity also got her a little bit in trouble sometimes. So the story goes. Um. She tried to shoot for the stars and make a bunch of intense, fancy recipes that they really hadn't gone over much in class. Um, and she ended up failing her final exam. So the final exam was like, you know, like you cook them. From what I understand, in the movie it was portrayed like she had like write down the recipe. So maybe mm. that was it. But either way, um, yeah, she failed her first exam at Le Cordon Bleu. Um, some say that they set her up and they gave her a recipe to like, you know, write down or cook or whatever that they like she wasn't familiar with. But... I don't know. I I don't know what they did. So either one, either way, she failed the first exam, but she was determined and she tried again, focusing this time on the timeless French basics that they had been leaning on. And she aced it, graduating from Le Cordon Bleu in 1951. And with that degree, she joined a women's gastronomy club called the Cercle des Gourmets, which was kind of like an eating club. <laughs> they would just travel in between each other's houses once a week and have these fantastic meals and just talk about food. Oh, she's a foodie. Oh, she's, a she's just a foodie. foodie. It sounds like insane and amazing. Like it was basically like like a weekly book club, but you just have fantastic French food. <laughs> It was a place to gather people together, and it was also kind of a middle finger to the male-dominated world of French cuisine, which makes it even better. Uh-huh. Because, like, there weren't really, like, female head chefs at the best restaurants in Paris, you know? It was kind of like, oh, that's cute, your little, like, dinner club. And they're like, we're actually at the head of, like, French cuisine, so, like, fuck off. So, but more than just good food and wine, this was a critical moment in Julia's life because she met a French chef named Simone Beck, whom everyone called Simca, and Louisette Bertot. And together, the three of them decided to start a cooking school together, teaching women how to cook called Le Croix des Trois Gourmands, the school of the three food lovers. 
And this would be Julia's first venture into something that would become her passion, bringing French cuisine to Americans. So they set up this school in America? No, in Paris. Okay, in Paris. Yeah, so they're teaching American women who are now living in Paris how to cook, which is awesome because kind of like Julia, a lot of these women are coming over, like, you know, if their husband's in their military career or whatever, and uh, they like don't have anything to do and they're like yeah i would love to learn french cooking but like le cordon bleu is only gonna teach me how to boil a fucking egg yeah you know so yeah julia and um, and simca and louisette they decide that they are going to cook the Amer- that they're going to teach the american women how to cook i love that um and this is also where she got the badge um for uh the school the food three lo- the three food lovers oh That's- so she wears the badge yeah, regularly. So she wears the badge <laughs> um so, yes, yeah, so she's teaching them proper knife technique, the basics of French cooking, and just all of, like, those things that, like, are timeless, that, like, not just, like, this is exactly how you cook, like, bouffe bourguignon. This is how you cook meat so it is done. You know what I'm saying? But, like, I don't know. I don't know. So, anyways, yeah, she's, like, teaching, like, really basic stuff. Like, the skills so that they can, like, <sighs> extrapolate it and yes. do it again on something else. Exactly. Um, and then... Julia joined Simca and Louisette on a project they had already been working on for a cup for a little while. It was a French cookbook which blended classic French recipes and recipes passed down from Simca and Louisette's families from the French countryside. It was going to be like the end all be all of French cookbooks that was going to be marketed to Americans, a French cookbook in English, which hadn't existed before. Oh, and it's like here is both urban and rural France brought together. Yes, exactly. Okay. In this cookbook. And uh, but the first time they tried to get it published, they were like, no, Americans aren't going to want this. So they went to Julia and they were like, would you be interested in being like our basically like American ambassador on this book and like translating it for Americans? Yeah. And she was you're like, our official, <laughs> you're our official American. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Julia just was like, absolutely. I'm so into this. I'll do it. I'll so do it. She just devours this book and she just tears it apart basically she's like let's get rid of this that's terrible this is what we should do for this part and she totally redesigned the cookbook but i mean she was doing exactly what they wanted her to do the idea of the book was french cooking for all so they wanted it to appeal to more people and she was like this is garbage she was like nobody wants to read an entire paragraph on xyz like you need to put it into clear like one two three four steps you know bullet point yeah exactly and one of the most iconic things she did was she put the ingredients on the left in a list in order of when they were used in the recipe and then the directions on the right which is still how cookbooks are styled today we style cookbooks that way because of julia child so she spent a lot of time translating this cookbook um and not from french to english but from like french markets to american grocery stores i mean this was before the age of international items in stores so she was also looking at the book and be like americans don't have access to creme fraiche in their grocery store so what's a good substitute right what's a good substitute could they make it at home with things that they could buy in stores and like nobody had like american places like housewives don't have fishmongers so like what are we telling them to look for you know and just like really like making it she she called it like french cooking in the home Mm. she was like this isn't for restaurants this is for women to cook at home um so she starts doing all this also she really just had to change it from like metric to 
standard whatever we have english um, customary yeah, system english customary system <laughs> and then she had to change little things like how much flour to use because flour is processed differently in france than oh it is in the u.s i would have never I even thought know. of that so these are the things that she's like yeah you, you wouldn't have known this because you're not from there and they're like wow yeah we had no fucking idea so representation matters <laughs> yeah we need more stuff for americans um <laughs> we need more waspy white women telling people what to do Please. and this was the really, sentiments the same <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this was really hard work i mean she took every recipe in this book and made it over and over and over again to find the simplest way to execute it and also put it in writing while also maintaining the integrity of the recipe she wasn't saying like cut corners she was like no just find a simpler way to do it you mm. know so let's also be clear uh this was also very hard on julia and paul's stomachs because they had to try all this they food. were eating all of it <laughs> and can you like french food is just full of cream and butter and it's like so rich and heavy give me it more bread and cheese not please. good for the system so <laughs> they would have to take like massive breaks and eat really bland food for like stretches of time because their stomachs were absolutely destroyed it's like but one week on diet. rice and tomatoes yeah, and exactly. one week on french cuisine <laughs> so it's the early 50s they're working endlessly on this massive tome of a cookbook but unfortunately, a 700-page cookbook was a little too much for some publishers. And their first, book, their first book deal kind of fell apart. And they even had to return their advance, which was a huge oh. blow. Yeah. And I want to also make this clear. They had a lot of trouble with publishers that I'm kind of really condensing because, like, it's just too much to, like, really go back and forth. For between. sure. So, like, I'm really condensing this. Um, they did find another publisher, but the relationship between the three women was also suffering. And Juliet and Simca felt that Louisette was not doing as much. So they told her straight up. They're like, we're not going to give you an equal cut of the profits from this. So she walked away with 18% of future profits. Um, also, in the midst of all this, Paul and Julia keep moving because he's being relocated. They go to Marseille, the south of France, and then to Germany, which Julia really did not like. <laughs> and finally, in 1956, Paul and Julia were on their way back to America. And the cookbook is not done. But they'd been working on it for so much time. So many like, years. It feels like a decade. It's nine years. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was over exaggerating. No, 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 no. It's, yeah, it's just about a decade. Oh, man. <laughs> so Julia just, I mean, she has such a great attitude. She's just taking it in stride. She's like, no, this will be good. I want to sell my book to Americans, so it'll be good to, like, be back home among my people. But when she got there, she was shocked at the direction food production and consumption had gone too this, much process oh yeah this okay. was the era of the tv dinner instant mashed potatoes jello which she she really hated jello <laughs> she was like i did not boil a calf slug in my kitchen for 24 hours to have you give me a freaking cart of powder like <laughs> so I mean, she was like, what the hell is happening? And she just kind of discovered that, like, it was no longer desirable to be in the kitchen. You wanted to zap something, get the heck out of there. It wasn't fashionable right. for a woman to really be in the kitchen for a very long time anymore. So, and, like, I can kind of, I think there's, like, a good balance to reach where, like, I think that, yeah, cooking good food is really fun and is great. Like, Casey and I fucking braised a 
pork the other day for like three hours you know and it was awesome but like do I want to do that all the time like no no that's like a weekend thing (laughs) exactly so but she was like no this is not okay like because like everyone it was like too much the standard to like not be eating like real food um so she's really depressed about this and she had some hope that women in the U.S. would still be somewhat interested in real food but she was getting really worried that her recipes and techniques would fall on deaf ears but she kept working on it long distance with Simca and eventually in 1961 after working on it for nine years and having three book deals fall apart mastering the art of French cooking was finally published in its entire 726 page glory it's amazing (laughs) when julia was 49 years old i just also want to give her a shout out because she she hit her stride later in life which i think is really important it is and it's crucial because i think uh well one of the things that stupid gary v you know who gary v is who's that so gary v is like this um he's kind of like a social media like advisor and like Mm. that's what he does he tells people this is how you use instagram this is how you use facebook this is how you use this and one of his things and he probably quoted it from somewhere else that every overnight success is 10 years in the making Mm. it's Mm -hmm. like you didn't that person didn't wake up and write hamilton that person didn't publish a cookbook overnight they worked on it for 10 years it's like you know why we reference the history chicks all the time because their podcast has been around for a decade yeah like there is like a level of work that it takes to enjoy the notoriety. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's what 49 is like, hey, get it, girl. Get it. Yes. Um, and then it came time to market the damn thing. And she and Simka started traveling around the U.S. together to promote their book, doing demos anywhere they could and going on TV shows. But it soon became clear that Julia was the one who was much more comfortable out front. They even went on the Today Show, like in like the very beginning. Wow. I know, which really put them on the map. The day after their appearance, hundreds of people showed up to their cooking demo at Bloomingdale's. I know. Thankfully, this also meant an increase in book sales and positive book reviews. Mastering the Art of French Cooking was originally slated to sell 10,000 copies in the first year. And it sold that much in the first week. <gasps> this was like unprecedented. Wow. Yeah. They blew it out of the water. And Julia started to become more and more interested in reaching people through TV. And her big break came when she was 50 years old. Julia was scheduled to appear on the show I've been reading from WGBH Boston. <laughs> this show was all about books. So, unfortunately, it meant it could be a little bland at times. And they had never really covered a cookbook before. And it was a 30-minute long interview, which is a long time. There are no commercial breaks at this time. Like, this was 30 minutes straight. So Live? Live. Wow. (laughs) That's intimidating. Or at least, like, taped to live or whatever it was. Like, there wasn't any, there weren't any redos. Got it. So she went to the producers and she was like, hey, I'm a little nervous about this. She's like, I'd like to bring a little hot plate and some eggs and stuff. And if things start going south, I'm just going to make an omelet. And they were like, oh, OK. And sure enough, interviews going on. And Julia just stood up and she just took charge of the whole show. And she was like, will you follow me over to the hot plate? And she made an omelet live on camera which had never been done before is this like the cooking demo that they do always now yes oh my god 
gosh. She is the first one, and she's describing each step and technique in detail, and people fucking loved it. This had never been done before, and the people of Boston started writing into the station, being like, I like that. I want to see more of that. I want to see more of her. So WGBH Boston started to talk to her about doing her own TV show. And plans were in the works. The show would be called The French Chef because it fits easily on the TV guide. (laughs) And on February 11th, 1963, Julia came into people's homes and charmed the pants off of them with Paul at her side the entire time. Paul helped her practice the recipes and he helped them like time them out perfectly. Um, The show was shot live on tape. So there was again, no cuttings or redos or anything like that. It had to be timed out perfectly. The episode was 28 minutes long. So the recipe had to take 27 minutes exactly. oh wait but there wasn't any like and here it is where yeah. you like put it in the <laughs> oven and then you're like but i also made one earlier i think there had to be like a little bit of that uh-huh. like, a lot of things that's like yeah braise the beef for three hours mm-hmm. and it's like okay here it is but like but you know, ultimately like all the steps like if you know she burned a sauce she just had to keep going there wasn't time to make like redo it make a new sauce and cut the new segment in like there wasn't time for that (laughs) my um my mom does that with the kids when she makes christmas cookies with them she'll let them make the dough but then she has already made the dough and she'll like put it away and then get out the dough she made and be like and let's make cookies now She Did she learn that from like Julia Chuck? I think she what? just didn't want That's their crappy so... dough. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do this terribly, so I did it for you. Uh, yeah. That's so funny. Oh, my god! She does it the night before. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, Mom, you're such a control freak. Just eat their damn cookies. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, okay. So, so, yeah. So, there's no extra time if she was, you know not done yet and if she finished up early she had to keep talking (laughs) (laughs) now add some old pay (laughs) yeah like there was one time like she finished up and she was like all right bon appetit and the guy was like julie we have like eight minutes left and she's like all right uh let me show you how to clean the kitchen (laughs) crack an egg or two like what do i do (laughs) (laughs) so paul had also taking the time to design a kitchen specifically for Julia's height. So she wasn't bending down awkwardly the whole time. Oh, super nice. I know. So from what I understand, there was the set kitchen and her kitchen at home. But then like, I like they talk about it as if it was one kitchen. So I don't, it's like, it seemed like the show was filmed in a studio and Paul created the two kitchens. Like, oh, one in each for place. Her, one in each place. Okay. But then I wasn't quite sure. So if anybody knows, like, I tried to, like, really find out. Did they out. film it in her home, perhaps? Did they film it in her yeah. home? I don't think so, because that seems like it would be really hard at the time with the technology. So yeah. if anybody knows for sure, I'm really curious. So if he built her two kitchens or one. But either way, Paul designed this kitchen perfectly for her. And he would, like, choreograph her movements around it because he knew it really well, too. So he would be like, okay, so this is how you move around to, like, make the best use of the time and space. And it's not, like, an asshole way or anything like that. Like, they just worked really well together. Like, don't turn your back to the camera and stand here and do this. Yeah. Yeah. And he, because he was passionate about her career just as much as she was. Because, honestly, when they moved to the U.S., Paul was pretty, like, pissed at the government because... I didn't go into this much, but I was watching the movie earlier and this reminded me of it. Um, When they were 
being transferred to the U.S., they almost didn't let them back in because it was the McCarthy area Ugh. era, and they're like, "Well, you lived in China, which is like you're a com- you're a red, yeah, so they thought they were China. communists." Yeah. And like Paul was like really upset. He was like, "How fucking dare you? I have dedicated my life to this country, and you're going to tell me that I'm a communist and I can't come home?" Like, yeah. So anyways, I think Paul was like really happy to just be like, yeah, let's make a TV career. This is awesome. (laughs) This is so fun. (laughs) And just like there's all this great footage of like, you know, Paul like standing up on the chair and he's taking because he's a photographer and he was taking photos of Julia cooking like he's a supportive Instagram influencer husband. So cute. Like he is all in on this. It's It's like, I think the light looks really good right now. So like, you know, people would be really cool if we get like an above shot from like the top, you know, and we can really get the whole dish, you know, like it's just great. But it was all, all this hard work was so worth it. The show was revolutionary. Julia really connected to people because she was fun and energetic and imperfect. People loved that she explained everything clearly, but also that like she couldn't find the whisk sometimes. <laughs> and like there's this famous scene where she drops a potato cake and she's like, oh, that's all right. You know, you just put it back in and smash it down again. And it's just you alone in the kitchen. So like Nobody it's totally knows. fine. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's so real. It really is. And like she just like. She told people, she was like, it's okay to like make mistakes. And like, you know what? If you put too much salt in it, don't fucking apologize for it. Like when you have a dinner party and like, if you don't think it's up to snuff or you're nervous about it, she's like, don't apologize to people. You just cook them dinner. Like, yeah, you cook dinner for them. That's awesome. Yeah. Eat my dinner. Yeah. Eat my dinner. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) She also taught the audience how to prep certain things. She's like, you know, when you make you know, when you make this dish, you can cut the potatoes ahead of time if you don't have enough time that day and just leave it until you're ready. Like, people were blown away. Like, wait, I can prepare? What? (laughs) I can cook something over multiple days? They were stoked. And again, when mistakes came up, she just used it as a learning tool. She was like, oh, look at that. My sauce came out a little too thick. That's all right. If this happens, just use a little bit of cream to thin it out. And like, there you go. The dinner is saved. Like, the dinner was never ruined. She was like, there's always a way to salvage always this. Fix. Always a fix. It was just so real and useful. And they really loved that at the end of the episode, she'd pour herself a glass of rosé, which is why that's what I used. <laughs> and she would congratulate the viewers on what a great job they did. Always ending her episode with the classic line, happy cooking and bon appetit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just infused joy into cooking. And she wanted to get the message across that like cooking doesn't have to be a chore. You can enjoy it. Like not everybody enjoys cooking, but she's like, if you do, it's not a bad thing. She's like, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, no, get out of the kitchen. It's terrible. You know, and she's <laughs> like, no, it's really going to be good. <laughs> and she also knew that being authentically herself was the best way to connect with people, um, which sometimes meant that, like, you know, she would, like, wipe the sweat off of her forehead and, like, keep cooking. And people were like, wow, that's fucking gross, Julia. And she's like, like yeah, oh, shut up. Like, it's just me in the kitchen. And they're like, yeah, and, like, 10,000 viewers. <laughs> um, but she was right. The show was a smash hit because of her. People loved her. And studios all over the country started airing The French Chef. She became a national icon. The French Chef won an Emmy Award in 1966 and a Peabody Award. She cooked at the White House. She was on the cover of Time Magazine at the age of 56. People just could not believe that a middle-aged woman was the toast of the town. (laughs) The French Chef would run for 10 years. 
And in the beginning, Julie was only paid $50 per episode. <laughs> and she was also having to buy the food herself. So That's she was insane. making like, no money in the beginning of the show. But she knew that she was investing in herself. And by 1967, she was getting around $200 per episode and $500 per public appearance. In 1968, she and Paul started building a little stone house on Simca's land in France um, that they called La Peach. And they started working on a sequel to their cookbook. But Simca didn't really have any idea that Julie was a star in the U.S. And she was getting really confused because they would be out and people would ask to take photos with her and stuff. And she was like, what the fuck is going on? She was like, and she's kind of mad because she's like, I'm a better chef than you. Yeah. Why are you being popular i don't understand and the book was my idea like yeah she had exactly already done the book. It was yeah. Our, yeah so and she just like didn't and like julie would be like oh i don't know it's you know she wasn't really being super open with her okay. about like i made a tv show she wasn't honest about it <laughs> yeah i think she like kind of dropped in she was you know but she didn't really tell her the extent of it you also don't want to necessarily rub that in somebody's no face. you don't and, like but the the whole relationship really started to sour um, which really sucked, but Julia really tried hard not to let anything slow her down, and she just kept working on her show and the book, but her and Simka just were no longer on the same page. Um, they did end up finishing the book, um, but, but yeah, but it just wasn't the same. And then later that same year, Julia gets diagnosed with breast cancer. No. Wow. But again, she just worked through it, and she said, all right, just just take it. And she had her left breast removed. She said to a friend, I'm going to get a false titty and I'll be fine. Here. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to look about, look at a mastectomy. Exactly. So Mastering Volume 2 was finally released in 1970 and it sold out immediately. Um, but as the 70s went along, heavy French cooking was falling a little bit out of fashion again. But instead of digging her heels into the ground and like, you know, being like, no, this is the way you do it. She just adapted and she started incorporating more American recipes into her books and lightening up the meals a bit. And she also started incorporating modern technology like food processors. And by 1974, um, I mean, you know, there's a lot changing. She's really having to change up her way of working and her way of cooking. But then Paul, her dear Paul, suffered a series of debilitating strokes and he had to take a step back from Julia's career, which made her really sad because it was really like their life. It was like something it, they did together. Exactly. Um, and it just was like, a, like it just kind of felt like, oh my gosh, can one more thing like not go fucking wrong right now? Like it just, there were a lot of hiccups during the 70s. Um, but Julia persisted like she always did. And she came out with a new show. In 1977, her show, Julia Child and Company, premiered, and it did something very new. Each episode was based around a series of recipes for a special event rather than just one meal. So then she would prepare in one episode appetizers, side, dinner, and dessert around like a birthday party or a holiday celebration or like your husband's boss is coming over for work, you know? (laughs) And it was like, here's what you cook, the whole thing. And it had never been done before and people loved it. Um, And of course, each new show she comes up pairs with another book, (laughs) which was also very nice financially. 
Then in 1980, she joined Good Morning America. She would go there once a month and tape like five cooking sequences. And that was it. It was so much easier than a whole TV show. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. In 1981, she founded the American Institute of Food and Wine. And she also started really focusing on local food scenes, helping new chefs in Boston get their start. This led to her making a new show called Dinner at Julia's, which was the first traveling cooking TV show. She traveled all over the U.S. interviewing chefs about what they were cooking and getting tips from them. She would go with them to their local markets and she would learn all about like what cooking was like in their area of the country. Hmm. Like they'd be like in Seattle and they're like, yeah, we actually have great fish markets down here. So like this is where I come, you know, and like this is the best thing to buy. And like it's just great because... I love that she is like learning from other people in her later years. She's like, yeah, I don't know anything and I don't know everything. Like the food scene is changing. So I want to change along with it. I want to learn. Yeah. She was always a learner. Oh, she, yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of the season of this show, which I love, all the chefs that she had interviewed on over every episode would get together for a dinner party at Julia's house and she would cook for them. That's so fun. Great? I love it. I was like, man, I wish the show existed now. I know. I want to be on it. Uh, but all this traveling caused her to have some pretty severe knee problems. Um, and her health is starting to deteriorate a little bit. Um, so she made another cookbook deal and she tried to kind of slow down by focusing on writing and taking care of Paul. But both were really stressful. This book would take five years and she would eventually have to put Paul in a nursing home. Mm. He didn't know who she was anymore. <laughs> and he just needed more taking care of than she could provide. So um, that's all happening. And then in 1993, she made another TV show called Cooking with Master Chefs in which she would travel to find up and coming celebrity chefs. So like she did in Boston, she would find these chefs and be like, OK, this is what you want to do. I'm going to help you do it. Yeah. So and Guy Fieri. One of them was Emerald. <laughs> One of them was Emerald Lagasse. That's so cool. I know. And she helped them get more exposure. Um, and I just love that in her final year, she really just wanted to invest in the next generation of great and amazing cooks. But in 1994, Paul Child finally passed away and Julia was devastated, but she wouldn't allow herself to cry. And instead of falling apart, she literally left the funeral and went to work because she knew that Paul would have just wanted her to keep going. In 1997, she suffered a broken knee, uh, an infection and a stroke. Oh, no. That was you know. a bad year. I know. And then in 2001, she finally decided to just move back to the West Coast and retire. But she didn't like retirement and she really didn't like all these health problems. She was just getting infections constantly and she had some kidney issues. She eventually was put on dialysis and they start putting her on this medication. And the a medic, this medication was helping her literally live. But the side effect was that she lost her sense of taste and smell. No. Mm hmm. And this was too much for Julia. That's like when Julie Andrews got that surgery and then couldn't sing anymore. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. How do you, that's terrible. So, uh, Julia made the choice to stop taking the medication, which would kill her. Her friends were really mad at her, but she was like, look, if I can't taste food, there's no use in sticking around. Food is my life. I don't want to spend the last couple years of my life just being miserable, not doing what I love. Right. So she stopped taking the medication. She eventually just started refusing all treatment. 
she just didn't feel like herself anymore. And she told her assistant, it's time, dearie. If I can't live the way I want to live, I'd rather not live at all. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a little nap. And that's exactly what she did. Julia went to sleep on August 11th, 2004. And on August 12th, 2004, she passed away in her sleep at the age of 91. Wow. Julia's legacy lives on in her cookbooks, her kitchen, which was donated to the Smithsonian. You can actually like, still see it today and like walk around in it. And of course, basically every show on the cooking channel. She received plenty of awards in her lifetime. In 2000, she received the French Legion of Honor and she was elected a fellow of the American Academy Arts and Scientists in, two, or Sciences in 2000. She was awarded the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2003 and she received honorary doctorates from Harvard, Johnson & Wales, Smith College, Brown University, and several others. In 2011, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Julia's last book was not a cookbook, but an autobiography called My Life in France, which documented her incredible life and her incredible love of cooking and Paul. It has all these letters between the two Little of them. Little anecdotes just, and stuff. Yeah, just all these cute things that, that really explores the intimacy of their relationship and like how much they really loved each other and you know how much they love their life even though like sometimes she was like yeah I'm like a little sad we, we don't have any kids but like you know I still love our life you know so she ends the book thinking back on it now reminds me that the pleasures of the table and of life are infinite toujours bon appétit Oh, that's so I know, sweet. that's the life of Julia Child. That's a really great story. <laughs> and I mean, of the two of us, you were the one to do that story. You're the chef of the two of us. I do like cooking. <laughs> Did you see the message that we got from Tux? No! On Instagram. Okay, so for people who don't know, Tux and Stephanie are... Um, Beyond Reproach. The hosts of Beyond Reproach, who we actually hung out with in New York when mm-hmm. we went up there to do our show. Well, he messaged, and I think he organizes, like, catering or something oh, like that. Cool. But maybe that was just part of the dream. But he had a dream <laughs> that he had to cater a wedding with the two of us. <laughs> and I was like, don't choose me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll serve the food. Ask Katie to cook it. It's not me. Oh, my gosh. I did love it because I love Julia Child because, like, I do. I love cooking, and I love particularly, like, something that she loved was hosting, kind of like mm-hmm. Martha Stewart loves hosting, and that's why I love her because, like, that's, like, my favorite thing. Yeah, I like, love hosting, but I re- a cookbook intimidates me. I love cookbooks. I'm so scared. I, <laughs> I literally like, I just like read them for fun because it is really satisfying because sometimes like if you don't feel like you're doing a lot or whatever, even if you don't even make the recipes, sometimes if you're like, you know what? I could do this and it makes you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> you're like I could make homemade cinnamon rolls. I won't. But I could. The majority of my time at cookbooks <laughs> is spent Googling substitutes for the ingredients because I don't want to go to the store. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> I'm a mess of a human, and it's fine. Oh, all right. Well, that's her story. I'm ready to get more drinks if you are. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. We'll be back. So long. Thank you. 
This is Stephanie. And Tux. <laughs> from the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history. But it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants. And their behavior should be beyond reproach. But if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. Best. And like, I haven't taken a shot of tequila in a really long time. There's nothing so like a good shot of tequila. I love it. I also, I made sure to buy um, this particular tequila called Altos because it was, we used to buy, I mean, a bottle a week and it's like $26 tequila. <laughs> <laughs> When we were first Ow. dating, I was like, we're crazy. Why are we doing this? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. It was, we got really turnt Saturday night. And That's just, good. And like, yeah. And then I, I passed out on Casey. He was like, literally like, Katie, wake up. And I was like, this. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was great though. Mm. Yeah. Highly recommend. So are you ready for more tequila? Home. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks amazing. So this is called the butterfly effect. Okay. And it is two ounces of the blood orange tequila that you got me for Christmas. <laughs> and then one ounce of triple sack and two ounces of passion fruit juice or Ooh, something like tropical. that. Yeah. Okay. I got the V8 splash version. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> One ounce of lime juice and you salt the rim and you put ice in it. And then get this, a dash of vanilla extract. <gasps> also, I think it's crazy. Like neither of our drinks had garnishes this week. I either, know. Which is funny. It's just like ice. I uh, love I, it. Yeah. Well, here cheers. we go. Mm, I love it. Mm. It's like a very interesting margarita because it has some of yeah. the, some of the ingredients of a margarita. But it also like just kind of tastes like really awesome fruit punch, mm -hmm. like <laughs> like boozy, salty fruit. <laughs> yeah, punch. it's delicious. It's really, really good. I'm mm. glad. I'm glad it turned out this way. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Yeah, with just a little bit of softness from the vanilla. Mm. Tasty. It definitely that makes the undertone a lot easier. It's not too yeah, sweet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. mm. So, what do you know about the Mirabal sisters? I don't know anything. Okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, I know that they've been on the list for a really for a little while. I feel like a couple people have like requested it. Oh yeah, um, requested them, but like sometimes they'll request just one or two or you know all of them, and like I don't really know. I know that I feel like all four sisters did really cool things, but there were like two that did really particular things. So. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's so the Artemis has sent us the, the sisters and yeah. then specifically Minerva Maribal. Um, Rebecca Denauer sent us an email with like a Buzzfeed list that mm. had like really cool um, Latinx women to like cover and mm -hmm. they were on that list. Oh, so cool. we've gotten this from like a lot of people that this is a group of women that we have to cover. Okay, cool. Also, I'm glad you said that because I thought they were Thai for some reason. Hmm. Okay, but they're not. No, no, no. They're okay. from the Dominican Republic. Very different. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know why I thought they were from Thailand. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> here we are, Dominican Republic. <laughs> Woo um but I I'm I am gonna say like the first portion of the story is 
history about the island of Hispaniola. Okay. Because it's really important to understand the Dominican Republic and Haiti and the history of colonialization in that area. Yeah. Because the sister's story, unfortunately and tragically, is relatively short. Oh, okay. So understanding, like, the government surrounding them is very, very important. What's important? Because I don't really know. Like, I feel like we'll just go like, oh, that's Central America. And then, like, we don't really know anything Mm -hmm. about any of, like, the countries within it. You know? Like, I know there's, like, Honduras and the Dominican Republic and... yeah. You know, I just yeah, couple I don't, islands. Yeah, I don't really know this, anything about yeah. it. Um, so I'm super excited to learn about that region. It should be good. All right. Um, so I got a lot of the information from a podcast called Stuff You Missed in Hi- History Class. Oh, that's a great show. Yeah, very good. Um, it's iHeartRadio show, mm-hmm. so very, very nicely produced. Yes. I'm like this, <laughs> <laughs> and some of it from Wikipedia. And then I watched uh, the YouTube video called Las Hermanas Mirabal because I really wanted to get like a feel for how to say all their names. That's a good <laughs> idea. Because I always thought it was Mirabai. Oh, yes. Mirabal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not good at rolling my R's, so <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Okay. So... Brief history of Hispaniola. Obviously, in the Caribbean and in Central America, you've got, like, the the isthmus underneath of Mexico or south of Mexico, and then you've got the Caribbean islands. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hispaniola is the island that includes both Haiti and the Dominican Republic together. The part of – there's a part of the border – in the northern part called the Dahabon River, which is called Massacre River. Ooh. And it's because of two separate massacres that occurred there. Okay. One in 1728 and one that's later in this story. Okay. But in the 15th century, all of the indigenous inhabitants were living on the island. The Arawaks and the Tino people. But in the late 1400s, Christopher Columbus landed <laughs> there on his first journey. That sounds nice. Right. Okay. He seems like a cool guy. Is he going to give them presents and treat them nicely? <laughs> He'll give them uh, diseases mm, and rape. Darn him. <laughs> <laughs> and that made Spain the first European colony to have settled there. Spain seceded half of the island to France at that point. Um, which is obviously the Haitian side, which is why they're so culturally different. But in 1804, the Haitian Revolution, they like rose up against France and then France out the door. And then Haiti like annexed the Spanish side for a while and controlled it. But in and that was for like 20 years, they uh-huh. owned the Spanish side while Spain was still there. Um, but in 1844, the Dominican Republic declared its independence from Haiti, splitting them again, and then they declared their independence from Spain. So now they're a country. Okay. Okay. They're a separate country. But at the same time, the US was like, that's a real that's a real nice little <laughs> island. That's a cute island. I like it. I'm gonna go hang out there. It's a very strategic position in the Caribbean. They always say that. They always say that. It's always it's all for strategy. I don't I don't want to drink margaritas on the beach. That's not what I want it for. No, I want it for I want it for trading purposes. Bombs. Like (laughs) they're just wow, they're so selfish. Yep, just a bit. Um so this after World War One, 
they first take over Haiti and the U.S. occupation, not like as a colony, but they occupy the area. Okay. Start with Haiti and then the Dominican Republic, because at some point, both of the presidents got assassinated by people within their country. And they were like, look at this unrest. We're worried about Germany coming in and taking over because it's between the two world wars. So whatever. Mm. We're just going to set up troops and whatnot there. So the period of time that the U.S. is there is marked by uprisings and racism and violence but also like setting up governments and setting Mm -hmm. up a police force and this that and the other so the u.s pretty much supported any decisions they made that were good for the u.s and then kind of ignored the other things while they were there but um In 1930, President FDR came up with the good neighbor policy, which meant this policy said that there was no intervention in Latin American countries, any of our neighbors, as long as clause. It's like, (laughs) we won't interfere as long as you don't become a communist dictatorship. So just like, watch yourself. And I mean, they stuck, struck true to that for a very long time. Um. But, of course, they're still influenced by military loans and whatnot. So, first, Horatio Vasquez was elected president in the Dominican Republic in 1924, which was an election that was overseen by the United States. But, in 1930, he was overthrown in a coup by General Rafael Trujillo, who's going to be a main player in this story. He ran for president and was appointed... uh, but he had been in the police force that the U.S. trained, and he okay. just overthrew the government. So he had U.S. So military he's in the training. Pocket. Yes. Okay. And it's like they wanted the U.S. wanted Horatio Vasquez to be the president. Okay. But then this guy that they had trained and didn't realize was going to be super powerful ends up overtaking him and taking over the country entirely. Okay. So all our fault. <laughs> <laughs> He had total control over the Dominican Republic for the next 30 to 40 years. He, like I said, had been a product of American occupation and trained by the U.S. military. Um, And remember that Hispaniola had been colonized by two nations. So they spoke different languages, had completely different cultures, and over time had very different racial demographics. Mm -hmm. The border between the two, El Jefe, meaning the chief, which is Trujillo, became the dictator and at that point, the border was pretty peaceful, but he was not down for the border being peaceful. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of this is connected to race because the half of the island that had been colonized by Spain was had lighter skin and spoke Spanish and the Haitian side had a larger history of slavery and more African descent. They had Mm -hmm. darker skin. Um, He went to the border and toured it toward the region to put in a highway. But then he ordered the killing of two to 300 border Haitians Mm. or Dominican people of Haitian descent. Uh, And overall 20,000 people were killed either, either Haitian people or Dominican people with dark skin. Oh my God. And they used machetes. So it didn't look like the military. 
and it's super fucked and just like me with not being able to roll my r's they often call this the parsley massacre because the spanish word for parsley has a hard r and they would ask people to say it and if the haitians couldn't (gasps) roll the r correctly they would then be killed oh my god yeah so people are living under martial law they're, he's killing all the opponents running against him. He has monopolies and kickbacks with businesses and trading, and he owns the press and the mail and passports and travel and everything. And this is the world the Mirabal sisters are living in. Okay. <laughs> so now we're to the girls. Okay. We have made it. Let's hear it for the girls. Yes. <laughs> Patria is the oldest, born in 1924. Day Day is second in 1925. Minerva is the third in 1926. And then nine years later, Maria Teresa in 1935. The Mirabal family were farmers from the northern central region of the Dominican Republic. They grew up raised by both parents, Enrique and Mercedes. And they were relatively well off. Like Mm. the girls went to Catholic boarding schools. They had money. They were farmers. They had a conventional upbringing for their social class. They all married well and they all had children. Like they're doing just fine. Petria, like we said, was the oldest born February 1924 and she was the first to marry. She at 14 was sent by her parents to a Catholic boarding school and she left that school at 17 to marry Pedro Gonzalez, also a farmer. Bebe, the second oldest, was born March 1925. She's 13 months younger, and she didn't attend school in the same way. She had the most traditional of the upbringings and wasn't really involved in what her sisters were doing in terms of education or activism. She wasn't against it, but Mm -hmm. she wasn't involved. Mm -hmm. Minerva was the third daughter born on March 1925 or March 1926, and that's 12 months later. So she's Irish twins with Bebe. Mm -hmm. Like, they were, like, one right after the other. She also went to the boarding school and then enrolled in the University of Santo Domingo to study law. She was the most vocal and radical of the sisters. And Maria Teresa was fourth and youngest, and her birthday was in October 1935, nine years later. She also went to the Catholic boarding school. She also went to the University of Santo Domingo, and she studied mathematics, and she wanted to be just like her older sister, Minerva. Very cute. That's so cute. After Petrea had gotten married, but before the younger sisters has... The girls caught the attention of President Trujillo, or Dictator Trujillo, but he was called the president. Yeah. (laughs) He had a really predatory relationship with the women in the country. Oh, no. He had a squad of beauty scouts that traveled the country to find attractive young women and girls to bring back to him. That's really upsetting. It's horrible. Sometimes they were still school-aged, like (sighs) high school-aged girls. They were pretty much kidnapped. They were forced to have sex with him, meaning raped, and they would either spend the night with him or longer if they got pregnant. And then they would be exiled and he would take their baby. Oh, God. No. Horrible. Horrible, horrible man. When he would travel the country, families would hide their female members so that he would not see them in public. 
and take them away. I literally feel like this is something from like Bible or like medieval times, you know, like, like that's, it reminds me of fucking what's her face. Um, Elizabeth Bathory. And we were like, hide your fucking daughters. Cause she's coming for them. Like she will kill them. She will kill them. Like I, but this is, uh, oh, uh, I hate it. I this hate is that the so dictator, much. Like, I think here's the the way I was thinking about it when I was doing research. So your parents went to the Dominican Republic on their honeymoon, um, and they were married in 1979. This was 15 years before that. Like that's the thing that's really hard to comprehend. That it's like it it's looked like a fun, yeah, yeah. It looked like a fun Caribbean island to the people in the U.S. And it's like, no, we are dying here. Oh my god. Yeah. Ugh, okay. I'm sorry. I just didn't. I couldn't think that something like that happened, I mean, in our... Recently. Very recently. Like, in our parents' lifetime. Like, yeah. something so archaic of, like, bring me all the virgins in town. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really upsetting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm sure... Okay. Gets worse. Uh, <laughs> so, um, okay. So... The Mirabal's entire family were invited to a party at Trujillo's estate. So I will say, okay, um, there is a um, movie. Well, there's a book called In the Time of the Butterflies that was okay. written about these women. And then there is a movie you can watch. It's free on Amazon Prime. You don't have to rent it. Um, and uh, What's-Her-Face is the main character. Um she plays Jack Donaghy's girlfriend, Selma Hayek. Oh, I love Selma Hayek. Yeah, she plays Minerva Mirabal in the movie, and oh. it is so good, and okay. she does such a good job because Minerva Mirabal was just a beautiful mm -hmm. woman, so of course she's going to catch Trujillo's eye. Yeah. So the whole family is invited to his estate. Um, it's an invitation you can't turn down. It's going right, to be it's, it's mandatory attendance. Mandatory attendance, exactly. <laughs> At the event, Minerva catches his attention apparently there's a disagreement about what happened in the movie. She was asked to dance with Trujillo and they are dancing and he attempts to grab her ass and she slaps <gasps> him in the face in front of everyone. And that is the story that the majority of people tell. Like she openly disrespected him in public in front of all the people. Okay. The family says that there was a loud argument, but no slap. Like okay. there was like a definite back and forth that made everybody uncomfortable. Okay. Regardless, he had made a move on her and she said no in front of his people. Yeah. Like no matter how it went down, that's what fucking happened. Yeah. Okay. And this launched a decade long personal campaign from Trujillo on the Mirabal family. And it went on for years. This revenge was against the Mirabals, but specifically Minerva. Oh, my God. So it is like Voldemort being like, I'm going to kill Harry Potter. And it's just like, <laughs> dude, you've got other stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, why this one person? <laughs> like, calm down. I know. It's it, like, I'm going to do that. After I do this and after I do that. After I kill a baby. It. I'm going to do it. But I, you know, I am busy. I'm a busy person. I got to kill this baby first. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
so crazy. <laughs> Cut so- Wormtail's hand off. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, I mean, it's so extravagant. It's like a storybook. Like yeah. he is tracing down their family. And the father sent letter after letter of apology for his daughter. But he was eventually imprisoned. Um, he's like, I'm sorry, my daughter didn't allow herself to be raped by you, <laughs> but like, please understand my family supports you completely, you know, like shit like that. Um, and Minerva and her mother were even held under house arrest at a hotel at one point until Minerva agreed to meet with Trujillo. Like your dad's in jail and I'm going to hold you under house arrest until you come talk to me about why you wouldn't let me rape you. <laughs> <laughs> bizarre he's a lunatic oh my god it is absurd um so she meets with him and she's like i am not gonna have sex with you even if it does mean you're gonna let my dad out of prison like no is the answer um and her dad was eventually let out of prison but it was so hard on him in prison that he died shortly after he did not make it very long so Trujillo's passionate hate against the family went on and on and on, and it drives them into financial ruin. He was so public about it that the people in the country refused to do business with the Mirabal family out of fear. The family was under constant supervision. They were miked everywhere they went. The military intelligence was listening to their conversations. Minerva, in particular, got reported for every little Thing she did and now she was like trying to run some uprisings against him like she's not like <laughs> sitting there like twiddling her thumbs and baking pies like right. she is now that she's against him she's fully against him mm-hmm. um but she gets in trouble because she refused to toast to his health at some party that she was at but like had nothing to do with the dictator and at one point she told a car salesman that Trujillo owning a certain type of car was a reason for her not to buy it. She's like, wow, now I don't want it. Yeah. (laughs) So she's just like, you know, standing her ground. Any people who associated with them were taken into questioning, which usually involved imprisonment and torture. It also harmed Minerva's ability to practice law she was in college to be a lawyer and they denied her enrollment for the second year uh, until she gave a public speech in praise of the dictator and I mean they do stuff like this in the movie like her pleading with him in a room to let her go to law school and like they do a really great job of like summing the story up but it's so much more and then once she graduates she's unhirable Who's going to hire her to be a lawyer when the dictator is fully against her in every sense of the word? She can't do anything. She's stuck because she wouldn't have sex with this man. It's such a feminist story. It's unreal. I just hate it so much because it shows like just how fragile male egos can be. And it's like, dear God, it's like you could like you take any woman you want. So like it you're going to let this one woman who actually like just like fuck off i hate it. <laughs> i know that's like the point of this story but i'm mm-hmm. so mad at him it's 
super, super frustrating yeah. because it's just a young girl who stood her ground. She said, no, I am a young, good Catholic girl, which in Latin America, you're supposed to be a young, good Catholic girl following these morals. And then your dictator is in direct opposition to your morals. And how do you do that? Because if you have sex with him and have a baby, he's going to exile you. Yeah. So what do you do? You leave your family forever. Right. You end up in Florida or wherever you get exiled to. Like, it's horrible. I also think the religious element is a really interesting thing to take because, like, for them, it's not even just, like, this isn't right. It's, like, my, like, personal religious moral understanding will be compromised if I do this. So it's not even... Like a like a big part of it is like, no, don't fucking do that to me. But another part is like, no, like my religious belief system is based around like me doing X, Y, Z. And like, that's my choice to have those beliefs. So don't fuck with that. Yeah. Like, yeah, that. Mm. OK, I, I it's, okay. it's a st- <laughs> reading these stories. I was astonished. So obviously <laughs> many of the mirabals became personally involved in activist groups that were trying to get un- unseat the president trujillo yeah. because as a leader of the country he is destroying their lives yeah. the whole family all of them so minerva was the first involved she was following in her uncle's footsteps and men at the university and obviously herself Mm -hmm. and then her younger sister maria teresa who lived with her for a time followed in her footsteps shortly after patria was mostly involved because her husband was involved but most of her work was done from her home like she was helping out but she was like the home front okay and day day's husband was like do not get involved with this at all this is not your place and she she was the one who was kind of most traditional didn't go to college didn't go to boarding school like she was just and she wasn't against them but she just was not involved right all Which for- is also totally fair. Yes. Like- <laughs> She's protecting herself and her children. Yeah, because I also want to make that clear because, like, I feel like sometimes... You don't, not like- everybody has to lay their life on the line. This yeah. is a, this turns into a very Sophie Scholl story. Yeah. Um, And it's sad, but Day-Day protected herself and her children, and it yeah. ends up being very good that she's alive. Oh, yeah, in the she end can tell of the story. story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I think that it seems really... Uh, it seems kind of like, oh, how could you not like stand up and do something? But like, it's just not for everybody. Like, not everyone can be. You're right, a Sophie Scholl or a Minerva. It's you can't do it. You can't it's do so, it. So, I mean, it it ruins your life. Yeah, it takes your life actually. Yeah, it so does. you yeah, you really have to sacrifice your your life and and yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. But so I, th- I like that there's someone in the story that can represent those people who are like, yeah, I'm not going to lay my life on the line. And like, right. That's also OK. And it's like, like, I'm happy you did it. I'm happy you did it. I support you and I'll tell your fucking story. But yeah, yeah, I can't do this. Yeah. Mm, OK. All four sisters got married and they all had children. Patria, Minerva and Maria Teresa's husbands were involved in the movement, obviously, to unseat the dictator. Um, because who would marry them unless you were a rebel? Like, oh yeah, yeah. These girls' names were in the mud. I'm you sure you could not be a part of this family. Yeah. The sisters wanted the Dominican Republic to have peace and democracy. They were distributing pamphlets that 
talked of all the acts of violence that he did. They were mm-hmm. like, we just don't think people know. Yeah. He's hiding all the people he's killing and it's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez's ex-husband is in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he dies. He's ben like- Affleck? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ben Affleck, <laughs> who holds his computer like oh, a monster. I also, I also want to be clear that I don't, when I say that not everyone can be like a, you know, like an activist, like it doesn't mean that like you shouldn't be like okay with everything that's going on. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like you shouldn't true. be like a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a total difference. I was just thinking that. I was like, oh, it sounds like I'm saying like, no, just go along with everything. But like, just be fine. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, you shouldn't be a Nazi. Find a middle ground. Right. Not even a middle ground. Don't be a Nazi sympathizer at all. Yeah. I feel like I'm digging myself in a hole. No, you're um, not. I wrote a lot, of, a lot of rosé involved in tonight. Um. <laughs> I wrote Sophie Scholl in my notes because I was just thinking about her throwing those pamphlets off the top of the building. Yeah. And she's like 20 years old and yeah. she's like, oh, it's a good day to die. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because she was literally like, yes. Like, here they all are. And like, what the fucking janitor? Like, that <laughs> Come janitor on. was a dickhead. But like, dickhead. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyways, yeah. go back and listen to that episode. If you're, if you're <laughs> it's really living, good. Learning her story <laughs> about the White Rose. Um, yeah. So, okay. They're distributing pamphlets. They're collecting guns and bombs. They're openly rebelling. And okay. this is why I say like Minerva was not innocent. She was like oh, yeah. forming yeah. a rebellion against yeah. him. In the 1950s, there's a lot of organizations against the dictator in the country. And they attempt a coup. Um, and all the exiled Dominicans return to try to overthrow him. But. And, and okay, so many of them had been exiled to Cuba and they had trained in Cuba and they were part of the Cuban Revolution. And when they came back, they tried to overthrow the dictator, but it just wasn't enough for the Dominican military. And they were most of the participants were killed. And that happened on the 14th of June. So after this, the Maribel sisters and their husbands create an organization called the 14th of June movement okay. to commemorate the day these people were killed who tried to overthrow the dictator. The sisters became known as the butterflies, which is why this is the butterfly effect. And most often... Um, You'll hear them called the butterflies. And if you want to watch the movie in the time of the butterfly with Selma Hayek, a lot of people will like brush past her in the street and will be like, God bless the butterflies or like, we're with you, butterfly. Like, I love that. And and it's like people's silent resistance, kind of like Katniss with the three fingers and the whistling. It's like, you're the butterfly. And people would put up butterfly pictures and signs and like, that's so great because again, it is like, look, I can't, go out and do what you're doing but like i I support support you and i'm with you just like day day is doing Mm -hmm. like i cannot be on the front line but like i'm here with you and And the the quote about them at this time was no matter how many times he jailed them no matter how many times he made them give up they never stopped coming for him Mm. they were just fighting hard i love it this group came up with a plan to try and assassinate Trujillo with a bomb at a cattle fair. Patria and her husband and children were dismantling firecrackers at their kitchen tables and like making bombs. <laughs> like, this is, it's crazy stuff. But the day before this planned assassination, which means probably leaked information, most of the members of the 14th of June movement were arrested, including Minerva, Maria Teresa, their husbands, and Patria's husband, but not Patria. Um, 
In July, Trujillo tried, though, to have the dictator of Venezuela assassinated because he kept saying shit about him. <laughs> why, is, why is he got to talk about me like that? <laughs> Constant. So <laughs> when you try to have the dictator of another country assassinated, it draws international attention. I'm so sure. now people are like, what is this guy doing? So... The Organization of American States, which we are a part of, this is a North and South America thing, Okay, voted to condemn Trujillo's actions and make some sanctions against him. This included the U.S. who said we are no longer going to tolerate our the stance of this like mm-hmm. horrible what you're doing. We closed our embassy in the Dominican Republic and we pulled out our ambassadors. We okay. were like, we're done. Because um, the countries were giving him major pressure and looking into his actions, he decided to release women from prison, political women. So Minerva and Maria Teresa were released, but they had been in prison for a while. It was not pretty. The the movie with Salma Hayek in prison is very sad. Um, But their husbands did stay in prison. The... um, So, but the husbands, they were taken and sent to a prison on a far off coast of the Dominican Republic, very far away. So in order to visit their husbands, they had to drive across a remote mountain path to get there. And they went and visited a couple times without trouble, but they had to get permission each time to visit, which they knew meant they were probably being watched. They even tried to rent a home closer to the prison so that that wouldn't be the case. Um, Because remember, all of these women have two children. Right. And all of their husbands are in jail. And all of the sisters are like, Day-Day is mostly babysitting everyone's kids. (laughs) Like, while they do this. (laughs) Like, that's what she does. She's very important. Um, But on um, November 2nd, 1960, Trujillo said, I have two remaining problems. They are the Catholic Church and the Mirabal sisters. My God, what a grudge. I hate Serious grudge. Because she wouldn't fuck you? Calm down. (sighs) Because that's the whole thing. It's like you're literally ruining ruining so many people's lives just because your, yeah, your male ego was bruised. Right. Because she yelled at you, maybe slapped you. You know what heals? Bruises. But you know what doesn't heal? Fucking people being murdered because i'm and sure that i'm sure that's where this ends like <laughs> it ends I mean, yeah and soon yeah <laughs> gets rough I that was... mountain pass didn't sound good <laughs> yeah it's like sparta <laughs> my god um so november 25th 1960 returning home from a prison they were overtaken by trujillo's henchmen Patria managed to get away from her captor and wave someone down and yell to tell their families that they had been taken. The three women and their driver were strangled and clubbed to death, but their bodies were put back in the Jeep and the Jeep was pushed off the mountain path to look like it was an accident. But everybody knew it was not an accident. This made many of the dictator's problems worse. Even though most of the male leaders of the 14th of June movement were still in prison, he thought killing the butterflies would fix it. But their assassination had the opposite effect. And it was the beginning of his end. Mm. When the bodies were found, there were finger marks on their neck, which made people know they didn't accidentally drive off a cliff and it got 
attention that his other crimes haven't. They were young, attractive women, 36, 34, and 24. They all had children, and he started to lose support from his army and his military, who had previously backed him. We knew he, they said, we knew he was going to have them killed, and we couldn't do anything about it. Six months later, Trujillo was killed in an ambush. Some of those involved were members of the army that were pissed that he killed those girls. Mm. This today in the Dominican Republic is considered justice and not an assassination of Trujillo. In 1962, the Maribel sisters assassins were put on a televised trial and the men were convicted uh, of 20 to 30 years of hard labor. Um, it did not put a final end to the Dominican Republic's problems. There was a president. He was overthrown. There was a civil war. The United States intervenes. Troops came. There's a next president, et cetera, et cetera. But it does get better. Minerva's husband does get assassinated in all this at during all of that time. But Day-Day, the remaining sister, worked to not only raise her sister's Six other children. She had two, and she raised the six other. That gives her eight children. I know. But she also protected their legacy. She founded the Maribel Sister Foundation and a museum. Um, She wrote a book called Alive in Their Garden. Um, She did die at 88 from natural causes in 2014 is when Day-Day died. What? Um, But this family and these women... They are now heroes in the Dominican Republic. The Mirabal family, um, Dede's son, became the minister for the environment and eventually became the vice president of the Dominican Republic. Minerva's daughter is the deputy for foreign ministry. And um, that's just two of the sisters whose kids did amazing things. There are memorials all over the Dominican Republic. Every town has a street, a school, a plaque, a statue. Mm. In 1988, the obelisk that Trujillo had built in honor of himself was painted over with a mural of the women. I love that. I know. Oh <laughs> Literally repainting history. Yeah. I love that. The mural that was founded by Day-Day is in the last house where all of the sisters lived lived and their remains were dug up and buried there Ugh. in 1997 there was a review of the history curriculum in the dominican republic and the sisters were recognized in every school as national martyrs mm. and in 1999 the united nations general assembly declared november 25th as the international day for the elimination of violence against women Mm. in general and that starts a 16-day activist period that ends on december 10th with the international human rights day the butterflies have since been put on the 200 dollar currency note in dominican republic and a stamp and after her death before he died minerva's husband said they fertilized the earth with their blood to bring about Trujillo's end. Mm. And that is the story of the Maribel sisters. Wow. That's incredible. I I just, I'm so mad at Trujillo, which I know, which is frustrating because it like almost eclipses the, like how enamored I am with them. They're, you know, he was terrible. Because, he was raping it, young women all over the country. But 
I think you have to be that mad at him in order to really appreciate what they did. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter was it, I mean, they literally, it, it cost them their lives to stand up to him and they just kept doing it. And like, I think that they knew very well that it was going to end in their death, especially mm-hmm. in Minerva. She was like, I know I'm going to die for this cause. And like, I don't know when or where, but like, I'm not going to stop. Like, I, I have to keep going. That was incredible. And it's oh so gosh. good. I would highly recommend, because it's free on Amazon Prime, like, yeah. I would highly recommend In the Time of the Butterfly, because yeah. it's good. It's a little fictionalized, but it mm-hmm. gets every point across that we yeah. talked about. And Selma Hayek kills it. And mm. it's just, it's it's a really great tribute to these women that we don't talk about. There yeah. are so many. I feel like latin america like in in the sense of like this podcast has probably gotten the least play from us mm-hmm. but it's also like such an a crucial region and there's just not as much history coming out of it that is pop culture yeah it's not that it's not there it's that it's not like pop culture relevant yeah so people don't talk about it yeah and it's so very cool mm. all right well now it's time where we talk about these multiple women. <laughs> <laughs> All five of them. All five of them. In a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. I don't even know where to start. It's so hard. It really is because on the surface, I really feel like they are such different stories, even though they existed at the same time, yeah, which blows same my time mind. Period. Yes. Because I also think that one, you know, on the surface is very fri- frivolous. It's fun. And the other one is literally life and death. But I think the one of the really main things I thought about was that I think that, you know, Minerva and Julia both were like, you know what? Like, I am worth more than this world is giving me credit for and kind of like investing in themselves. Like right. Minerva could have absolutely been like, you know what? I'm just going to take a bullet for the fam. I'm going to get raped by this guy. But she was like, you know what? No, I'm sick of this and I'm going to do something about it. And I just felt like Julia kept that same energy in her life. She was like, I feel like she was being told what to do for the first half of her life. And then she was like, you know what? I don't have to stay in Pasadena and get married and like do X, Y, Z to keep the family name. She was like, I can go and live my life and do other things because I just think that they both saw value in their life aside from, I don't know what society kind of expected from them. And it's such a crazy story because it's like, Julia Child, she hit her stride way later in life. Yeah. The oldest of the Mirabal sisters when the murder took place was 36. That's unbelievable. And it's like she had not like Julia Child had not even made it yet. No, she was literally still like like in the cordon bleu. She was a no one. She was nobody. She was just finding out even who she wanted to be. And I just, I think the the deaths of these women obviously has inspired yeah. an entire country. Like the Dominican Republic is much more well off than yeah. it was, um, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It's like their children, their children are now public servants. The well, children of these women well, that are gone. And it's because they both invested and inspired in the next generation. Like we talked about when Julia Child got older, she wasn't like, 
I'm the French chef and nobody else can be. She was like, oh, there are other people coming out. And there Find are, me Rachel Ray yeah, immediately. Get me, Martha. <laughs> you know, like there's this great cooking segment that I watch where like there's old ass. She's so fucking old. Julia Child. And she's watching Martha Stewart cook. And she's like, wow, I love how you did that. And she's like making a hollandaise sauce, which is like Julia Child's fucking shit, you know? And she's like, wow, you're doing a really good job, you know? And like. I'm going to invest in your career. Emerald, bam, you got it. I'm going to invest in your career. <laughs> and like that was the end result. They knew the Mirabal sisters knew that like no matter what happens to us, people can look at us and be like, wow, they died for the cause. And like I mm. just I feel like both. I mean, obviously, everyone's story ends in death. Hmm. which is a really big concept to start off with, but hear me out. How meta, Katie. Um, <laughs> How meta of you. <laughs> but I think the the common theme that I also kind of saw throughout both of their stories was like, you talked about how they never stopped going after him. They never were like, well, let's just pull back. Let's move. We're going to get out of here. We're going to start a new life. They're like, no, we are going, we are not going to stop. And I think Julia never stopped. And yeah. I felt like, stopping for these women was equal to death and at the end of her life julia i think we kind of really overlooked the fact that she chose to kind of end her life she wanted to die with dignity she wanted to die on her own terms mm. and i feel like that's what the mirabal sisters did they're yeah. like they were like i'm not going to to die in vain i am going to literally go down swinging like i'm going to die for a cause and like I think there's a lot of dignity in both of their deaths of like, this was not for nothing. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in Julia just being like, no, like, I know that you want me to live another two years, but I don't. And like, it's okay that I don't. I'm kind of done. I'm done. And it's, you know, and and I, she was like, if I can't live the way that I want to live, I don't want to, you know? And I think that the Mirabal sisters were like, if we can't make life better for other women here, then what is the point of us having a half life in this country that doesn't respect us? Like, and I, I, I also put like stopping equals death, like a shark, like trying <laughs> to make some kind of connection. Cause I don't even think that's true of sharks. I think that they can also take naps, but <laughs> I heard once that a sharks shark can't sleep. Yeah, sharks can't sleep. Um, but you I, know what I'm saying? It's like they had to keep going. Yeah. And I wonder about the fertilization as- aspect. Mm. Like Minerva's husband was like, they fertilized the ground with their blood. Yeah. And I do think that's what Julia Child did. Mm-hmm. She was fertilizing the ground with what she did. Yeah. She was saying, this is how we're going to introduce cooking to women. Because that was her original goal. Like, I know she had a show and she had cookbooks and she had money and she was famous. But her goal was to teach women how to cook and mm-hmm. not like you're a homemaker cook. Yeah. But cook like you want to cook. Exactly. And that's the same thing the Mirabal sisters were doing. They were like, I want to teach you how to live and not live like the way you're living, yeah. but live like the way you're supposed to with freedom and rights and list all these amazing opportunities. Yeah. They were going to college to be lawyers and mathematicians. And yeah. that's the 1940s. Let's be clear. Women didn't even do that in America. Yeah. Like that, like, 
they're they gave up so much for the next generation. That's so much forethought. And yeah. Both these stories did that. It was like, I'm yeah. doing this for you, not for me. Absolutely. And then you also had both of these women with, like, good people surrounding them, too. You know, like, I was thinking about those people who would, like, pass them in the street and be like, you know, like, you know, I love you, butterfly. You know, and just, like, that whole feeling of, like, there are people that support me even if I can't see them all the time, which is how TV was in Julia's day. She, like... The guy told her, he was like, you got to just talk to that camera like it's your best friend. He's like, so, I mean, think about Julia in those early days. There was no live studio audience. No. Like, hey, girl. no one there. Hey, my cam. No, like, I, all these people came to pay to sit in the audience to see me. She was like, I am in a room by myself talking to a fucking camera and making an omelet. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And I just, I feel like, then she really got a picture of all the people that supported her. And then you have the people that live on to tell their story. Like day, day went on. Like it's important that she held back a little bit so that she could continue their story. And it's really important that there were people who were like, no, this is how it really was. And like that Julia did have an, you know, the option to get together and be like, this is what happened in my life, you know? And then there are people continuing the legacy like i think about julia powell in the early 2000s being like i'm gonna cook through this book and like we didn't really talk about that movie or that book or whatever the blog that much but like she kind of got people interested in again and julia child in the 2000s you know and i don't think julia child was a super big fan of the all that but (laughs) you know but then it turned into this new movement of like people being like wow i didn't realize that julia did all that that's like really fucking cool and like it changed this girl julie powell's life and then you have people continuing the rebellion after the mirrorball sisters were murdered because it was like no, that didn't make us want to go back to canned food. That mm. made us want to revolutionize and invest because I don't want that happening to anyone else. And I think the thing that sucks so much is like Trujillo had already killed, Rafael Trujillo had already killed tens of thousands of people on yeah. the border because their skin was not the color he wanted it to be. Yep. But these these three beautiful women changed the tide. Yeah. Everybody was like, no, fuck that. You can't kill them. And I know that's, that's fucked in two ways. It's like, maybe you should have cared about all those people originally. Yeah. But also like, Hey, it, at some point, if you are the one that's standing on the end of the plank to jump into the water with Mm -hmm. the crocodiles, so be it. Yeah. And I think that's what they were. That's what the Maribel sisters were saying. Like, so be it this time is our time and yeah we're done yeah no that's exactly it and julia's like if i have to be the first person to make a fucking cooking show and i drop the pancake you know whatever who cares fine then it's me who does it and i do it on my own terms and i'll pick that fucking pancake up and i'll put it back on the plate and i'll tell you that everything's okay yeah because there has to be trailblazers who are willing to do that and to be like i'm doing it first and i'm fucking up because yeah. <laughs> I'm not Martha it happens. Stewart. Julia Child was like, I'm not Martha Stewart. Like, I don't like, you well, know. Well, she fucked up like, royally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she, she brought it back. She you brought it back. I'm saying? Like, I just feel like there are the, 
the people who are the trailblazers are the people that are like you have to accept you know yeah I don't know just like they're the ones on the front lines and like yeah it's great and like even if it's something frivolous like bringing French food to America or literally trying to ensure the next generation of women does not get raped constantly (laughs) you know it's like they both have their time and place and I love that Mm. Same time, different places. <laughs> Very different places. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Are you ready to toast? I'm this ready to toast. Um, Allie, who would you like to toast this afternoon evening? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to toast the martyr in all of us Mm. obviously the Maribel sisters paid the ultimate price for the country that they believed they deserved and they believed that their children deserved but I think uh, so many of us do that we give up something we desperately want or need for something that we know will be even better for the next generation Mm. so even if we don't get to like reap the benefits I just want to like cheers to all the women who are like I'm putting this in now so that the women that are younger than me get that betterment. Yeah. And I think that's what's important. Yeah. So cheers Cheers. to the martyrs, whatever you're giving up. Mm. I'm going to toast to the large women who love life. I think that Julia Child was a person who literally was larger than life. She was very tall and Instead of shying away and just being like, I'm going to be a spinster in Pasadena, she was like, you know what? I, it doesn't matter that like, yeah, like I'm not the exact marrying type. I'm going to go out and do whatever the fuck I want. And like, I just, I just, I, I think she was large and larger than life and I love her and I just want to cheers to her. Cheers to Julia. All right, Allie, what would you like to promote this evening? So me and producer watched um, this documentary series like this past week. Um, and it's a crime scene about the Cecil Hotel. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. And Elisa uh, uh, Lim's disappearance. Because she was found in the water tank, right? Yeah. yeah and it's I super don't know. Weird. It's a super weird documentary in general. I don't know that they did the best job, but it was just a really like interesting story of like, okay, this person is totally dead and we don't know why. Yeah. And I just I like stories like that. And I just it is another unanswered story of a woman who disappeared and we don't know who killed her or if she ended her own life or what happened but it doesn't like it was just, it was four episodes so it's not like it was super long and you know how katie and our i are with true crime oh yeah so if this is not your cup of tea then like walk away from it but yeah it was it was interesting to see like the manager of the cecil hotel at that time was a woman and she's mm-hmm. like I wasn't doing a bad job at my job. I'm just like telling you this is what happens in California. Like people are crazy in LA. But then there are also two Skid Row historians. Hmm. Skid Row is that area right in LA where like homelessness is like top of the charts. Yeah. And they just talked about how like women disappear all the time in Skid Row and like nobody cares because it just happens. And I like literally didn't even know it was like a real place. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, I looked up when I was watching the documentary with producer, I looked up the 
how close Skid Row was to Compton. Mm. And it's like a straight line. It's like Skid Row, Inglewood, Compton. Okay. I think Inglewood's the name of the one in the middle. That's Sounds like, like it. a town in California. It's like a rough town. And I, I, I don't know. Inglewood? Hashtag his- Yes. Yeah. Hashtag history will be able to tell us. They will tell us. Yeah. yeah. We're if, not from the West Coast. We don't know what's going on over no, there. No, no, no. I can tell you what's happening in Baltimore and Philly. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps New York. Definitely not Boston, but no. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like one of those things where it's like, it was very, it was cool to see people comment on it and be like, this is a really big problem in America yeah. and we're not talking about it. And this girl disappeared and it got notoriety, but nobody cares about the other stuff that's happening, yeah. like homelessness. Okay. Perfect. So <laughs> give me something more positive. Ah, I mean, obviously I'm going to promote the movie, Julie and Julia. I still have 35 <laughs> minutes left, so I don't know how it ends, Um, but <laughs> what a good reason. it was just like it. Today was another, yet another snow day in Baltimore. And it was one of those days where, like, fiance got home early because it was literally too dangerous for him to be up on roofs, obviously. Um, And so I turned on the movie and was heating up some pasta. And then he walked in and we watched the first, like, hour and a half of the movie together. And it was so nice because, like... It was it's just a nice movie. You get some really beautiful shots of like Paris in like the 40s and 50s and and then I really do I don't think Julia Child really thought much of Julia Powell, Julie Powell, but like I also like her like in the 2000s and like she is an like she's working as like a telephone operator for like an insurance company that's like or like something like that that's like people suffering after 9-11 and she walks by ground zero and it's 2002 so it's like still rubble and it like really hit me that like wow like she was probably not okay no one in like new york was fucking okay at this time and then she found some joy and new life in in julia child and cooking and cooking and it just I don't know. It was, it was, it's a good movie. Um, I'll let you know if I anti recommend it by the end of it. So we'll see when I get home. <laughs> I'll update you next week. on how Obviously the you should all watch the, in the time of the butterflies. You should watch it with yeah. Casey. He'd love it. I think he would too. It's mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Good movie recommendations this week. <laughs> I love that both of our ladies have movies after them too. It's not oh. always the case. It's a very fancy, very ah. fancy person. We got Selma Hayek and Meryl Streep. We're in good company. We are. And the Tooch, Stanley Tooch. <laughs> you get a real nice Tooch shot. And Jay Leno's um, ex-husband, not I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if they're like? Ben Affleck, do you want to be in this movie? <laughs> it's like, absolutely. He's like, I am the only white. Yes. <laughs> like when you're doing the drop down list, it's like, I'm white, non Hispanic. Yeah, like that's the next drop down <laughs> list. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us if you haven't already. You could and win a book. You could win a book. Oh, my gosh. Allie, tell us a little bit more about okay, that. By March 1st, you, if you rate and review us and send us your picture so we know who it's from. That's mm-hmm. only so we know who it's from. Yeah. So that we can. We're putting you in a raffle. And then we have two great books that people, authors, have decided to give us free books. So we have um, Strong Like Her from Haley Shapley and then Olivia Campbell's uh, Women in White Coats. Mm -hmm. So we have two books to give out. Yeah. So 
you can get benefits from rating <laughs> and reviewing us. Yes, exactly. So please do join the community. Um, we're here and we love hearing from you in all shapes and ways. <laughs> Everywhere you can find us. We like it. We do. Um, but don't forget to join us on cocktail or tipsy Tuesdays to find out what drinks we're going to be which making is tomorrow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we're recording on a Monday, which is very strange. Super for us. strange. And I'm going to see Katie again in like a second. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but we love you guys. Thank you so much. And never forget that well-behaved woman. Follow the recipe every time. <laughs> and they really make history. Goodbye. to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye